We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. Recruitmentary. Empowering your employment. Originally released on the Mike Tech Studios Career Resource Podcast miniseries. Featuring Sarah Burkholtz. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is Michael Midnight. And as we are continuing on our topics for recruiting, today's topic is actually going to be placing talents with us today. We do have Sarah Burkholtz. Sarah has successfully helped 900 professionals placing accountants, financial analysts, and managers. Sarah, good morning. We're glad to have you with us. Good morning. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Glad to hear it. The first question I always like to ask with anybody who is in the recruiting field is, what was it really about recruiting that made you want to get into the field in the first place? So like many other recruiting professionals, I kind of fell into the field. I was initially exposed to recruitment when I was working for the Office of New Student Programs at American University. I was charged with hiring a staff of 15 people to lead three months worth of events catering to thousands of people. And I caught the recruitment bug. You know, I never went to college envisioning that I would get a degree in recruitment that doesn't even exist. And I loved the feeling of helping other people obtain employment. It's the best feeling in the world. I really love recruitment a lot. And I love getting to connect people with jobs that will supply them the fuel to reach their goals, um, whether it's their financial goals or their career goals and helping them find the perfect match. That kind of joy you just can't replicate in any other career. Even just you explaining it, it sounds very motherly like you sound like a very motherly person that <laughs> somebody would come to you and build them up and help them and really just point them in the right direction yeah you know i try to take an approach with all my candidates that hopefully that's in alignment with the positions that i'm recruiting for and if not then i'm happy to still give them any advice on their resume or interviewing style to hopefully help them for other positions that might come their way and I really do appreciate that. And I'm sure people who are looking for that type of assistance really would appreciate as well. You know, you had a recent interview where you spoke at the Afghan embassy. You mentioned you'd seen over 20,000 resumes. I'm guessing that's probably the same amount of cover letters to go with it as well. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that there is no such thing as a perfect resume and that every resume is in progress. What tactics or formats have you found to be the most responsive and reactive for the candidate search? Oh, sure. Yes. In recruitment, there are really two formats of resumes, at least in the U.S. The first is a chronological resume, and the second is a functional resume. A chronological resume is one that you're most used to seeing. It goes from your work history from most recent to least recent, and it organizes your experience based on each position. Functional resume, however, is going to list all the different types of skills you have, whether it's customer service or administrative or accounting or finance, and it's going to list your prior experience under those function. I find that more often than not, hiring managers prefer the chronological resume because it helps them understand when and where. However, I do think that there are good reasons to use a functional resume, especially if someone has had a gap of employment. Those are the cases where I think it's okay to use, but 98% of cases, your resume is probably going to look the best in chronological format. The best result you can have is a request to interview. Part of me saying that no 
no resume is perfect. And a hiring manager, when they are looking at a resume, they're looking at the resume through the lens of the position that they're hiring for. And you don't mention anything about your financial analyst. I don't care how good your resume looks, you're probably not getting called in for an interview. If you choose chronological or functional, but you don't have the skill sets that the position requires, the outcome will probably become the same. You can adjust the content to match the position by really highlighting the skills that are necessary to meet the position requirements. There are a lot of tactics that you can use to tailor your resume to each position that you're applying to. Industry, I found, isn't necessarily the most predominant marker of why a candidate will be brought in for an interview as much as skill set. So if you have the skills and the experience necessary to complete the task, even if you come from a different industry, you can do chronological or functional. I will tell you that what is most important is where that skill set is at in terms of the location of your resume. So if you open up a file in Word, you normally will have the default setting of seeing the top three quarters of the first page of your resume. When a manager is looking at a resume, and there's a lot of research that suggests that a manager and a recruiter will look at a resume for six seconds or less, they're not necessarily scrolling through your entire resume. So that initial first three quarters of that first page is what is necessary to make a good impression. If you can squeeze your experience on a chronological or a functional resume, then I think that you've got a good format overall. Awesome. Recently, I've heard a lot of recruiters trying to tailor down to a one-page type resume setup. Is that something that you're in favor of or what's your thought process on that? There are always going to be exceptions to the rule. I think that, you know, when you are applying to a position that requires 15 plus years of experience, you're going to need more than one page. I think that pretty much any professional can keep their resume between one to two pages. I find that resumes that exceed three pages, typically that top three quarters of the first page is not being utilized effectively at all. And I find that people with really long drawn out resumes are not going to be called in for interviews as much as people with a shorter resume. So my rule of thumb is keep it to one to two pages. One page, if you have less than 10 years of experience, one page is definitely sufficient. You know more than 10 years of experience, or if you're in certain fields like academia or medicine, you might need more real estate on your resume to fit all the qualifications necessary. If you are in any kind of publishing role, or if you have samples of work that you need to include, rather than saving it under your resume document, I would just recommend having a completely separate document to consider rather than try to fit everything onto your resume. As opposed to having supporting documentation of like a portfolio or some supporting metrics to show, you would say to actually separate these two as opposed to not just combining them all into one document. With your resume, you always want to incorporate accomplishments throughout the body of your resume. So rather than just saying that you performed financial analysis, you could say in that same bullet point in the same amount of space that you perform financial analysis for a $3 billion company managing a budget of $200,000, just an example. But if your resume is incorporating other factors that aren't relevant to your accomplishments, such as publications, the longest resumes I always see are those that are involved in international relations, academia, or medicine. And they're so long because they are including their published works and things like that. That is all really great stuff to showcase your expertise, but it doesn't need to be in the same file as the resume. Okay. Another good thing 
it actually has been brought up more and more is company culture. Is mm -hmm. company culture itself, as you're working with candidates and, and placing talent, is that something that you really try to just explore with the company that you are seeking talent for? So company culture in the recruitment industry is, I don't think has really properly been defined. People just throw out company culture as the same name as like their mission or commonalities between their employees. To me, company culture means it's an indicator of how people treat each other. That to me is what culture is defined as. How do people treat each other? Different companies have different ways of treating each other. You know, there are more casual companies where people can treat each other more, more friendly in terms of more of a casual friend-like stance. And there are company cultures that are a little bit more professional and buttoned up. <laughs> And in terms of finding talent, you want to find talent that will want to work in a place where they are comfortable being treated in that way. So if an employee is very buttoned up and uncomfortable in a casual environment, the likelihood that they're going to stay in that environment for very long is very low and vice versa. If an employee is super casual and they're in a very buttoned up environment, how likely is it that they're going to last more than a, a year or so? And I think that goes in with retention, building a community where people treat each other on a, a mutual basis. A lot of people look at culture and they try and find people that are exactly like each other. And I think that's counterintuitive to company growth. If you have a company where everyone thinks and acts the same way, that is not conducive to growth. However, if you have people that are comfortable relating to each other in a certain way, but have different thoughts and opinions and backgrounds, that's where I think companies will best grow and, and profit from. You know, I can't agree more with that statement. It covers everything that I've had on my mind and even that I have dealt. It just reminds me personally, I had a contract that I went in for, design and marketing contract, where it was a smaller company, a local, like a like a fishing shop type thing. And the guy seemed pretty straightforward when I talked to them, very nice guy. It was just a very quiet atmosphere and not a lot of people seemed like they were talking. I understand places are busy and I've worked where, you know, suit and tie in New York City and casual polo and jeans in the office as well. But I just remember him talking about how it's really great company culture and how he's really, you know, he really invests in his employees. This was a 1099 position that he was offering. There was no paid time off. There was no benefits. There wasn't really anything else. So I was just confused when I heard it. I'm like, how exactly are you investing in your employees? It just, the message that he was relaying didn't match the one that was actually there. Is their motto, is their company message and the way that they treat not only their customers, but their co workers and their employees, is it the same way? Well, and I think the term company culture has become a marketing tool more yes, than anything yes, else. Yes, it has. And with any marketing tool, does the marketing match the reality? Not in all cases. Not, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> there, there are always going to be outliers to the reality compared to the marketing. So I really try to avoid getting into, oh, their company culture is great. Whenever I'm talking to a candidate, I use terms that they'll understand rather than just saying a great company culture. So if I'm working with a company that I know that they have a quiet working environment, very quiet office space, and they are a very buttoned up environment, that's what I'll tell them about the environment. So what's great for one person might not necessarily be deemed great for someone else. But in terms of companies trying to embrace change to make their 
their workplaces better suited to employees, I think that there's actually been a lot of advancement in terms of changing the reality. Because we are in such a candidate-driven market, unemployment is very, very low. We don't have a lot of active talent on the market and positions with the advent of technology continue to become more niche. As positions become more specialized, they need more specialized talent. True. Well, I mean, the saying goes, you get what you pay for. And Mm -hmm. if the narrative is going to match what it is that you're doing, then. Absolutely. I do enjoy that a lot of the marketing campaigns with companies are starting to revolve more around people. So you see YouTube videos of their staff members talking about their experience working there. And you see photos and Instagram pages where people can really get a taste of how people interact with each other. I think that's valuable. But it is an investment. And I actually Mm -hmm. mentioned this in a previous podcast where it's like a relationship. If you're getting the same results in a relationship and the same thing goes without saying for a job, it is you're married to it. I mean, we have... You know, we have our work family, you know, so that is essentially where you spend anywhere from 65 to sometimes 90% of your day-to-day hours and operations. You know, I would work in the office for, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day. I would head out and I would get back home at maybe seven, eight o'clock at night, try to scarf something to eat, maybe close my eyes for an hour or two. We'd have new development features that would be worked on. The developers are not in the same time zone. So my 11 o'clock at night was there 8, 8.30 in the morning. So essentially, you're up and going at all hours of the day and night. And if there's something that breaks, again, it doesn't matter night, weekend, holiday, you get that phone call. And mm-hmm. It just ends up being, it would really help if, as you're saying, people are a little more vocal about what their work experience is and saying, you know, hey, this is where I work. Hey, this mm-hmm. is the people that are there. And it just makes you feel that much more comfortable. If you're buying a house, you look it up on Google Maps. You want to see, hey, what do the houses look like next door? What's the neighborhood that it's in? With that being said, Sometimes not everything does work out for the candidates that you work with and that you do talk to. How do you keep in touch or follow up or sort of just work with candidates that may not have been a good fit? In terms of staying in touch with candidates, I always encourage candidates to have an open line of communication going both ways. So I never want a candidate to feel like I I tell them, call me too. You know, if anything changes with the parameters of your search, what you're wanting and your goals are, I probably interview between 15 to 20 people in any given week. Not all of them will get hired, unfortunately. I'll connect with them on LinkedIn. I'll ask them to stay in touch with me as well. I'll shoot out emails to check in, see how things are going. You know, a recruiter can only do so much though. You know, you can never entrust any one person, no matter how good of a recruiter they are with 100% of your search effort. You can't have that be the expectation. You will always be setting yourself up for disappointment if you do that. That's the approach that I take. And I'm sure that there are always ways I could be doing things better. And that's why I asked for feedback pretty consistently from my candidates so I can continue to grow as a professional in the recruitment industry as well. Nobody's going to know you any better than you. And sometimes you may change your mind. You may decide and wake up, hey, you know what? I want to change industries or maybe I just want to be part-time or contractual instead. You know, things change. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's just good to let people know that, hey, you know, I'm listening to you and I hear you. You know, I, I appreciate what you do and I appreciate you What I like to actually follow up with and usually end the podcast with Sarah is everybody's favorite topic, recruiting horror stories. (laughs) Um, So also what I like to do is I like to end on a good note. So a horror story and then an awesome story if you do have. 
Sure. So a horror story over a year ago. I remember the timing because it was just two weeks after the inauguration in um, 2017. And I got this call and this man, he started yelling in my ear. He was like, hello, can you find me a job? And I said, I'm sorry, sir, but why are you yelling at me? I'm in the metro station and I need you to find me a job. <laughs> I, I don't know know how specifically I can help you. He's like, this is all because of Donald Trump. He is the reason why I can't find the job. I've been unemployed for two years. And at this point, I'm just interested. Like, how did Pray you know, tell. I was like, sir, I'm, I'm so sorry you're experiencing that. How do you know Donald Trump? He goes, I don't. Why would I know Donald Trump? I never worked for him. He's just keeping me from getting a job. I'm like, oh my goodness. I don't know how to respond to this. I was like, listen, sir, I, I hope that you have a lot of success in your career search. I'd recommend, you know, not calling recruiters while you're in the metro station. And, <laughs> you know, I gave him a little bit of advice and wish him well. But I was like, you can't blame people who, who you don't even know, never worked for, for your misfortunes in life. Um, <laughs> but I just, I couldn't, I'll never forget that. Hello, get me a job. Like yelling at me from a metro platform. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the best place to, well, I think he was confusing it with maybe some of the homeless people. I mean, they have really good marketing marketing pitches if you've ever been the new york city subway excuse me ladies and gentlemen i just i'm i'm begging and i just need a dollar and what we really need to do is we really need to harness what it is that people feel when they see those people because immediately you know what they're asking for mm -hmm. you know who they are and you immediately move away so i mean it's a effective marketing campaign if you will it's very cheap either that or when hey everybody it's showtime and then you have people almost kicking you in the face on the subway that that's always fun but i don't think it's the best time to be pitching your your candidacy for employment in the metro station that's right right exactly probably and, not yeah. great so, yeah, that's... politics in the first conversation and, and blaming people that you don't know it's just not a good vibe to be sending out in your first conversation so if i have to give any small piece of advice to any candidates listening please don't call recruiters from the metro platform and yell at them <laughs> well, i mean if you do tell a good joke or something i mean right right good <laughs> i think one of my my very favorite stories is a few years ago, I was working in our office services placement division. I was introduced to an executive assistant and she was struggling for about 10 months unemployed. And, you know, she had supported VPs at some very prominent companies. So she had an impeccable references and what was keeping her from getting interviews though, was her resume. So I helped her fix her resume and suddenly we're getting her interviews. So she went on a couple interviews and, you know, I would get feedback from hiring managers. Oh, she's not fit, but wouldn't tell me why. And then I brought her in. And I'm like, listen, before your next interview, let's work on your, your interview skills a little bit. And I came to realize she had extreme anxiety meeting strangers. That was really what was keeping her back from succeeding an interview. Eventually though, I got a call from a client that works at a multi-billion dollar defense contractor. And he said, Sarah, I'm in a bind. I need your help. Send me over someone to start tomorrow to cover our front desk for two weeks. That's all we need. Our, our receptionist is out. Can you help us out? I said, sure. 
let me call this executive assistant. She mentioned to me, I don't care what the pay rate is. I just need something. I need to feed my kids. I need to keep a roof over our heads. I gave her a call and I said, listen, this pay rate is like a third of what you're accustomed to making, but what you want it, there's no interview involved. She took it and she started and they loved her. They kept her on for three months and then she became a permanent employee. And then she got promoted to be executive assistant for a senior VP. And she got like a 60% pay increase. It was awesome. Took a leap of faith, taking a very short contract. And a lot of people who are unemployed, they don't want to take short contracts because variety of factors. They don't want to be in a situation where in two weeks they're applying for other jobs again. But you never know what will happen when you get your foot in the door. I had worked with that candidate for so long. You know, my my heart was really into getting her a job. I really wanted to see her succeed. I'm happy to say that she's still working at that company and she's loving it there. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, being the mom figure. You're just <laughs> talking about it's like, my baby's all grown up. <laughs> You can find Sarah on LinkedIn and on Twitter again at Ask Sarah B and on her website, sarahburkholtz.com. I appreciate you sharing that story with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. Not a problem. Have your own recruiter or candidate story that you'd like to share with us? If you're listening on YouTube, comment below. Otherwise, feel free to email your experience to ask at recruitmentry.com. You can find our full conversation of this episode on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash recruitmentry. Thanks for checking out this episode and feel free to like, subscribe, and share the content. A Mike Tech Studios production.